Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 37, The Franks, Origins of Kings. In the last episode, we talked about the death of Leo IV and how he left the throne to his child son, Constantine. When Leo died, he had many legitimate brothers, and with a child now sitting as emperor, they looked at the throne as ripe for the taking. However, Leo's wife Irene was a very strong and ambitious woman, who wasn't going to let her son's right to the throne go without a fight. Irene is one of the most fascinating female characters in the Middle Ages. Not only did she become the first female Roman emperor ever, but she also had a huge part to play with the emerging Roman emperor in the West. The first emperor in the West since the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. The first Holy Roman Emperor, Charles the Great, otherwise known as Charlemagne. But we feel it's important to give you the backstory of Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the king of the Franks. And the Franks went back to the crisis of the 3rd century, when the Great Migration Period sent hordes of Germans across the border of the Roman Empire. One of the larger Germanic tribes to invade settled in the north of Gaul, modern-day France, and they were called the Franks. By the year 150 CE, in the 2nd century, the Romans knew about the tribes beyond their northern borders. And even though they called most of the people from beyond their borders barbarians, they knew there were two distinct groups of barbarians, and they called them the Celts and the Germans. But there was a specific tribe of Germanic barbarians the Romans knew by name, and they were the Franks. In 250 CE, the Romans agreed to settle the invading Franks in the province of Gaul. So long as they agreed to fight in the Roman legionnaires and defend the borders from the rest of the Germanic tribes trying to break in. This wasn't the first time, nor was it the last time Romans would allow one of their enemies to settle in their land in exchange for military service. And eventually, the Frankish population grew so large, and their soldiers were promoted to the highest ranks in the military, that they became the most dominant force in all of Gaul. When Attila the Hun invaded Europe, the Franks joined forces with the Romans, and together they defeated the Hunnic army and saved the Western Roman Empire. But the empire was in chaos, and a Frankish king came to power, a king named Childeric. And under his rule, the Franks grew stronger. They defeated the Visigoths and the Saxons. In 476, when Odoacer conquered Rome and crowned himself the king of Italy, the Western Roman Empire collapsed, leaving the powerful Franks cut off from the rest of the empire. Around 485, Childeric died and his son Clovis became king. 
Clovis was a pagan king, but his wife was Christian. She tried many times to convert him, but he wasn't having any of it. Christianity was the religion of the Romans. Clovis did not want to restore Roman power to Gaul. He wanted it for the Franks, but mostly for himself. In 486, Clovis defeated the last Roman general still in Gaul. It took a full decade for the last of the Roman strongholds to capitulate, and now Clovis controlled all of northern Gaul, including the city of Paris. Clovis was starting a dynasty, and in order to protect it, he had to do terrible things. He hunted down and killed all his close relatives, and one who had lineage to his father Childeric. His ruthlessness gave him more land and a stronger kingdom. Even though he was a pagan warlord, he made sure to spare the bishops in Gaul. While he brutally subdued the Germanic tribes in Gaul, he relied on the church to keep the peace. Clovis needed the church to validate his rule and to keep the population from open revolt. The old province of Gaul was filled with Latin Christians, German Christians, as well as German pagans. There were most likely small pockets of Latin pagans who worshipped the old gods of the empire. In 495, King Clovis of the Franks defeated the Alumani tribe, taking another large chunk of land for his kingdom. The Alumani were one of the original Germanic tribes to settle during the Great Migration. The time came for Clovis to settle down and choose a wife, so he married a Burgundian princess. It just so happened that this Burgundian princess was a Christian, and she convinced him to convert to the religion of the Roman Empire. He abandoned his old German gods in exchange for the new god of the Romans. When Clovis converted to Christianity, he was signaling to the citizens of Gaul that he was following the tradition set forth by the Romans before him, and that he was a continuation of their traditional way of life. Up until now, the Frankish kingdom was centralized in northern Gaul, or northern France. But Clovis turned his attention south, to the Visigoths. His armies attacked them in Aquitaine and northern Spain, forcing the Visigoths to call the Ostrogothic king Theodoric for help. In 496, King Clovis heeded the words of his wife and was officially baptized into Christianity. What made this conversion so special wasn't the fact that he was baptized. Many German kings had been baptized before, but they were all Arian Christians. Clovis was being baptized as a Catholic, the official state religion of the Roman Empire. In 507, at the Battle of Vouillet, a massive Frankish army of foot soldiers engaged a large Visigothic cavalry led by their king, Alaric II. Now, cavalry have a huge advantage over foot soldiers. Not only did the rider have a better view and a longer reach, but he could outrun and even trample over the foot soldiers. However, the Frankish warriors were highly skilled and experienced warriors, and some of them would have served in the Roman army. It was a bloody battle, as the Visigothic cavalry broke against the Frankish shields, and the riders were pulled from their horses. While the Goths and Franks fought each other, King Clovis spotted King Alaric and charged across the battlefield to fight him personally. 
The two kings fought each other, but King Clovis was the better fighter, and he killed Alaric. The Visigothic king was dead, and with this single victory, King Clovis inherited all of Aquitaine and southern Gaul. At this point, the Franks controlled all of modern-day France, and much more. King Clovis consolidated his new kingdom and sent an emissary to the Eastern Roman Emperor in Constantinople. Anastasius I agreed to an alliance with the Frankish king and bestowed upon him the Roman title of consul, which dated back more than a thousand years to the days of the Roman Republic. The Franks were now very powerful and becoming Romans themselves. In 511 CE, Clovis called an ecumenical council of bishops to discuss the merging of the Catholic Franks and the Arian Visigoths, two very similar people with very similar religions. Clovis published laws and edicts that were supposed to set a legal precedent for his new Frankish subjects, making sure that everyone in Francia would be part of the same system. Now, this was also a Roman custom. Universal laws for universal culture. He was on his way to rebuilding the Western Roman Empire by fully Romanizing the German people, ruled by a German emperor. All he needed to do next was to take on the other major German kingdoms. There were the Ostrogoths in northern Italy, the Visigoths in Spain, and the Vandals in North Africa and the Angles and Saxons to the north. Unfortunately, though, Clovis died later that year, and power was passed to his sons, starting the Merovingian dynasty. Now, a quick fun fact, the French name Louis is a derivative of the name Clovis. So this guy is so influential in French history that almost every French king was named after him. The sons of Clovis divide the kingdom amongst themselves, Clothar, Childebert, Clodomer, and Thuderic. Even though the Frankish kingdom was now four smaller kingdoms, the brothers did not betray each other and actually worked together to conquer their neighbours, starting with the Saxons to the north. This, in turn, pushed the Saxons into the British Isles. Over the years, the four brothers fought many battles and assimilated more Germanic settlements into their kingdoms. In 524, Clodomer invaded Burgundy and fought in a battle against their king. It had been a bloody conflict between the Franks and the Burgundians that, that raged for several years. Unfortunately, Clodomer was killed. And then, there were only three sons of Clovis. Clodomer had three sons when he died, and as per Frankish custom, he was to divide his kingdom among them. However, his kids were still young and were living with their mother, Clotilda. Seeing this as their opportunity, the three surviving sons of Clovis went to Clotilda, where the three children were being kept safe. Their mother was brave and met the three sons of Clovis, her brothers-in-law. She was determined to defend her sons. Clother held out a sword in one hand and a pair of scissors in the other. This was a serious choice laid before Clotilda. The sword meant death to her three young boys. And the scissors meant they were going to cut their long hair and strip them of any right to rule as kings. 
Clotilda was a loving mother and couldn't stand the thought of her sons being denied the right to rule their father's divided kingdom. So she chose the sword, and Clothar murdered her sons. However, one of them managed to escape and lived his life in a monastery. Early into King Thuderic's reign, the Scandinavians invaded his northern territory. So he sent his firstborn son to assassinate the Scandinavian king. And this led to a long and bloody war, which the Franks ultimately won. Thuderic also invaded Thuringia, which is in modern-day Germany. Unfortunately, Theoderic died shortly after the campaign in 534, leaving his son Thudebert his kingdom. Now there were only two sons of Clovis alive, but there were still three kingdoms. The two surviving sons of Clovis, Clodomer and Clothar, immediately went to war with their nephew. Their two armies combined were not enough to defeat Thudebert, as he had grown into a formidable warrior. And eventually the two brothers agreed to accept their nephew as a legitimate king, although they would always watch their young nephew for the slightest sign of weakness. Unlike his grandfather, King Clovis, and the four sons of Clovis, Theodobert rejected the authority of the Roman Emperor in the East and had no intention of ever reuniting and working with the Empire. He wanted to create his own independent Frankish Empire and even wrote letters claiming the lands of the Roman Emperor. Theodobert even had his own coins minted with images of his face. Now this was a blatant rejection of the Emperor's authority. Despite having no regard for the Roman Emperor, he held the Catholic Church in high regards and had been praised by Gregory the Great of the Papacy. In the winter of 547-48, Theodobert went on a hunting mission and was killed by a wild animal. His throne was passed on to his son, Theodobald, who was only 13 at the time. Now this is the period of Justinian's plague, and many people were dropping dead all over the place. When Theodobald took control of the great kingdom, he was very young and in poor health. But the men in his court honored his right to rule out of respect for his father. But the young man could not keep his father's kingdom together. Justinian's general Narses took chunks of his southern territory away from him, and there was nothing Theodobald could do to stop him. In 555 CE, Theodobald finally died from his sickness, or poor health. There was no one competent or legitimate enough to rule the kingdom in his place, and the kingdom quickly fell apart. Childebert, the third son of Clovis, ruled his kingdom in Paris and participated in many campaigns with his brothers. He was there when they killed the children of Clodomer. Childebert was a vicious warlord like the rest of his brothers and spent most of his life fighting and conquering. Early in his reign, he received a letter from his sister. Years before, she had been married off to the Visigothic king in Spain, and now she was begging him for help. The Gothic king was beating her, humiliating her, and was terribly cruel. 
These people were used to cruelty, so for her to beg for help is really showing something. King Childebert led his army to Spain and fought against the Visigothic army and rescued his sister. The king of the Visigoths fled the realm and was captured and assassinated. Unfortunately for Childebert, his sister fell ill on the way home and died in southern France. Childebert would spend most of his reign fighting the Visigoths and stripped a lot of their land away and added it to his kingdom. Childebert married a woman with probably the coolest name I have ever heard of, Ultra Gotha, and she bore him two daughters. On December 13, 558, Childebert passed away at the age of 62. Because he had no sons, his kingdom went to the last surviving brother of Clovis, Clothar. Clothar was the fifth son of Clovis, and is probably this reason that he lived longer than the rest of his brothers. He was a warrior like his brothers, and a bloodthirsty one at that. He had no trouble killing his nephews, and spent his entire life waging war against his countrymen and neighbors, all of whom were fellow Germans. He was a Catholic, but wasn't religious about it. He didn't care what the bishop said. He took five wives and had children with all of them. Most of these wives were captured princesses from the Germanic tribes he conquered during his reign, making them more political marriages than personal marriages. When Thudebald died, Clothar tried to take the kingdom immediately, but local customs dictated that he share the kingdom with his brother Childebert. Not wanting to upset his brother at this time, he relinquished and the two brothers split Thudebald their grandnephew's kingdom. However, Clothar wanted the land to be rightfully his, so he married the widow of his grandnephew to make sure he had a stronger claim over the kingdom. But it didn't matter because three years later, Childebert died and Clothar inherited the entire Frankish kingdom. After 50 years of bloody wars and regicide and pillaging and burning of villages, not to mention the plague, King Clovis's kingdom was finally reunited, and a new Frankish king could finally pick up the mantle and work together with the emperor in the east to restore the Western Roman Empire, and with that, bring stability to Western Europe. To think that after all this time, they were just getting back to the height of King Clovis' reign. This was a mistake that the Franks were not going to let happen again. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. In 561 CE, Clothar died of pneumonia at the age of 64. When he died, Francia was bigger than it had ever been before. In order to make sure the kingdom didn't fracture and fall into civil war like it did when Clovis died and divided his kingdom up amongst his four sons, Clothar decided to do something totally radical. He did the exact same thing they did before and divided his kingdom up amongst his four sons. The sons of Clothar were Chilperic, Guntram, Sigbert, and Cheribert, 
And this cycle played out almost exactly as the cycle before. Only this time, one of the brothers, Chilperic, made a power play right at the beginning and tried to seize the entire kingdom for himself. The rest of the kingdom revolted, and he was forced to split the kingdom up amongst the four brothers. The four sons of Clothar already had children, but they were bastards, conceived from slave girls taken from their conquests. These bastards were not recognized by the Catholic Church. And seeing his brothers ruin their dynastic claims by marrying slave women, beautiful they may be, Sigbert decided to ask the Visigothic king in Spain for his daughter's hand in marriage, strengthening his claim to the Frankish kingdom and the borders beyond. In 567, Brunhilde, the Visigothic princess, married Sigbert and became a Frankish queen. Brunhilde was an Aryan princess, but she quickly converted and adopted her husband's religious customs and beliefs. She was a true royal princess, and had the manners and proper customs you would expect from a princess. Now this move made Chilperic jealous, and he quickly threw all of his slave wives and his bastard children out of his home, completely abandoning them. He wanted a princess bride too, and instead of reaching out to another kingdom nearby, he sent messengers straight to the exact same Visigothic king as his brother Siegbert. And yet the Visigothic king said, yeah. So Brunhilde's sister was sent to the Frankish kingdom to become her new sister-in-law. Unfortunately, Chilperic grew tired of his new wife, and shortly after had her murdered so he could marry another slave wife. This move angered Brunhilde to the point of madness, and Siegbert immediately went to war with his brother Chilperic. Brunhilde vowed she would do everything in her power to kill Chilperic for murdering her sister. In 573 CE, Siegbert defeated his brother Chilperic and finally avenged his wife Brunhilde and marched his army into Chilperic's capital city. However, Chilperic managed to escape, but he was no longer in control of an army. And unfortunately, Chilperic's slave wife hired two assassins to kill Siegbert, and they were successful. With Siegbert dead, his small portion of the Frankish kingdom was divided up even further amongst his sons. Only this time, the four sons were mere children and couldn't possibly rule over anything. But Brunhilde was a strong and ambitious woman, so she ruled over the kingdom of her sons as their regent. Brunhilde wasn't a warrior, but was a highly educated woman from Visigothic Spain, and she used her education to organize her son's kingdom. She built roads and wrote tax laws that strengthened the kingdom and provided enough funds to build monasteries and other buildings deemed necessary. The nobles in her court absolutely despised her as she was a woman, but also was costing them tax dollars. The Catholic Church wasn't a fan of a woman ruling a Frankish kingdom either. However, Brunhilde was a strong woman and continued to govern in the hostile environment. 
She convinced her brother-in-law and son of Clothar to adopt her son as heir to his kingdom, which he did. This strengthened her claim to more Frankish kingdoms, making her contemporaries even more jealous. In 579, Brunhilde married her daughter to the Visigothic king and her homeland, strengthening her bond and claim over the kingdoms in Spain. She knew the rules to the game, and she was playing it well. In 583, Childebert became of age to rule as king, a ripe old age of 13. However, Brunhilde did not let go of her influence and continued to make decisions in the kingdom. There were nobles in her court who felt she was abusing her power and influence over her son and conspired to have Childebert assassinated. This plot was found out, and she fled to the court of her brother-in-law, where they waited until all the conspirators were hunted down and brutally executed. In 592, Guthrum, son of Clothar I, died, and his realm was passed down to Brunhilde's son Childebert, giving them a large piece of the Frankish kingdom. Not forgetting her hatred for Chilperic for murdering her sister, she went to war with Chilperic's son, Brunhilde's sister was murdered over 20 years before, yet she never stopped hating. She wanted to wipe out all of his descendants from the face of the earth. In 596, Childebert, Brunhilde's son, and the king died. This made it very difficult for her to claim authority to rule. But she quickly bestowed herself as regent to her two grandsons and continued to rule over the kingdom. She was old now but just would not let go of the throne or a wooden seat or whatever it is she sat on while ruling the kingdom. In 597, the wife of Chilperic died, but Brunhilde's hatred to her and her lineage remained as strong as ever, and the fighting continued. In 599, Brunhilde's grandson expelled her from the court, and she was sent into the countryside, where she wandered as poor as a beggar, although she probably had some money on her. She was spotted roaming the countryside by a peasant, and was brought to the court of her other grandson, who instantly reinstalled her as regent. Now Brunhilde was in her late fifties, and she was as bitter as ever. Brunhilde was constantly manipulating her grandson to go to war with his brother, who had her exiled from court. The ordeal grew so worrisome for the commanders of the army that they refused to follow her orders, because they didn't want to play her games or do anything for her, really. The nobles did not trust her, nor did they want to entertain her ambitions. These refusal to obey orders angered Brunhilde, and she arrested all of the men who betrayed her and had them tortured before burning them alive in the court. In 612, the bishops had had enough, and they called out Brunhilde for crimes of blasphemy and incest and whatever they could throw at her to delegitimize her. She was surrounded by enemies and people who hated her, and she barely had any right to rule. In response to the bishop's angry sermon, she hired assassins to hunt down and kill him. 
In 613 CE, Thederic II, Brunhilde's grandson, died of dysentery, leaving the bastard son Sigbert II as the heir of the kingdom. He was only five years old, and the nobles feared he would soon fall into the clutches of his great-grandmother, so they whisked him away to be crowned as king, despite his young age. However, it did not stop Brunhilde from installing herself as the regent to the king for the third time. By this period, she was now 70 years old, and the people of the kingdom had had enough. They saw her as a Visigothic agent sent to conquer the Franks, and they rose up and overthrew her. She was charged with the murder of ten kings, all of whom were family members, either brothers-in-law, cousins, nephews. She was dragged behind a horse, her naked body scraping and cutting along the rocks before they stopped and tied her arm to one horse and her leg to another and had the horses run away at full speed, ripping her in half in front of the noblemen. And I'm sure they all cheered as it happened. This period marks the fall of Merovingians. The kings started to grow in number as more kingdoms were split up amongst the surviving sons. And soon the power became so diluted and the kingdoms grew so small, all of them bickering and fighting with each other. The role of king was not as important as it once was, and a new role was created, that of the mayor. A man who will rule in the absence of the king. As most kings were off hunting and fighting or doing whatever they wanted. The mayor became the new power in the house, but still acted on behalf of the absent king. This led to a very important figure in the story of the Franks. The first Carolingian, Pepin of Herstal. In 687, Pepin defeated one of the arch-nemesis of the Merovingians the Thuringians, a Germanic tribe much further east. This normally wouldn't be a big deal, except for the fact that Pepin was just a mayor and managed to defeat one of the strongest enemies of the realm. His many conquests allowed him to take on the title as duke. His son Charles Martel would follow in his footsteps. Charles Martel was a bloodthirsty conqueror like his father and fought and won countless battles. A lot of his successes were due to his cavalry, and the fact that his enemies didn't have cavalry. It's very easy to cut someone down with an axe when they're on the ground and you're chasing them on horseback. In 710, the Umayyad dynasty invaded Spain and conquered the Visigothic kingdom. The largest empire of the day was now right next door to the Franks, and they didn't show any sign of stopping there. In 714, Pepin died, and his son Charles was instantly thrown into a civil war. It turned out there were people who didn't want Charles to rule, and instead wanted power to go to Pepin's grandson. The civil war lasted several years, and at the end, Charles drove out his rivals and became the mayor. Charles Martel not only seized power and started to claim a lot of territory for himself, but he began to form a strong relationship with the Pope in Rome and ended up giving the papacy a strip of land in the center of Italy. In 717, the Arabs laid siege to Constantinople, and were eventually defeated by the infamous Greek fire and Theodosian walls. In 725, the Muslim governor of Spain attacked Carcassonne, 
in southern Francia. The Arabs then marched to Bourgogne in the middle of southern France. This was a major move for the Arabs and signaled the next phase of the European invasion. Many at the time thought France was about to fall to the Arabs, just as the Visigoth kingdom in Spain had before them, and the Vandal kingdom in Africa before that. There was no reason to doubt the Arabs would ever be stopped. In 726, the Muslim general invaded southern Francia, but was killed in combat. However, it did not stop the Arab invasion. It had only just begun, as another Arab army was beginning the long march through the Pyrenees Mountains, the mountain chain that separates Spain from France. For now, though, there was a brief pause in the fighting between the Arabs and the Franks. Meanwhile, back in Francia, Charles was at war with almost every tribe around him, and that included the Kingdom of Aquitaine. However, the King of Aquitaine, named Odo, came to Charles Martel's court seeking help. A large army of Saracens, that's the Umayyad Caliphate, had just crossed over the mountains and was in southern France. Realizing that the Muslim Caliphate had made it into Europe and was marching through France, Charles Martel joined forces with Odo and marched their army south to meet the Caliphate. In 732 CE, Abdul Rahman al-Gafiki, the new leader of the Arabs in Spain, led an army into Francia. He marched through southern France, sacking city after city. The army was only 120 miles south of Paris when they met the Frankish cavalry in the city of Tours. Now what he faced wasn't a bunch of unruly vandals or Visigoths like he had been used to fighting. These were Franks. And Charles Martel had professionally trained soldiers. His army was seasoned, and they were well financed from the papacy. Charles was still many miles north of the Arabs, but ordered his men to form a defensive line around the city of Tours. Here they were able to rest and eat while they waited for the Arabs to come to them. It was a bold move, as the Arabs were able to destroy more land and villages, but it also kept them moving, tiring them out, while the Franks were able to rest, eat, and prepare for the long battle ahead. Knowing that the Umayyads liked to charge their enemies and break them up so they could separate them and hunt them down, Charles organized his troops into a very tightly formed phalanx. And this phalanx was so tightly packed and armed with 20-foot pikes that it would have looked like something from the days of Alexander the Great. It was late October, and the Franks were dressed in wolf skins, and they were used to the cold. And they were prepared for the cold, whereas the Arabs were still wearing their lighter native clothing and were not prepared for the brutal cold European weather. Now let us not forget that this was an unusually bitter winter. According to the Greenland temperature chart, it was one of the coldest winters in thousands of years. All day, the Arab cavalry charged up the hill with frost covering the field, only to be beaten off by the highly disciplined Franks. Wave after wave left thousands of bodies skewered and bleeding on the frozen hill. The Arab bodies 
froze on the battlefield. Eventually, the Arabs started to panic as their forces were cut down by the Franks. Charles Martel could see that his enemy was flustered, so he sent several cavalry units to circle around the battlefield and attack the Arab camp from behind. Their horsemen set the Arab supply carts and their tents on fire, burning everything they had to the ground. The freezing cold Arabs and African Bedouins who were in the rear of the army had just watched their comrades struggle to make it up the hill without getting stabbed by the phalanx, and now they were watching their supplies go up in flames. French cavalry were now attacking them from the rear, and the entire Arab army panicked. As soon as the line of Arabs buckled in the middle, Charles Martel led a charge deep into the Arab ranks, cutting them down, riding through the battlefield, and spearing any Arab they could find, until finally the night fell. In the morning, there was nothing left of the Arab army. Tens of thousands of bodies lay cut to pieces on the frozen fields of Tours. This army was intended to conquer France, and from there it would have only been a matter of years before they conquered the rest of Europe. But here they lay dead. While they inspected the fallen soldiers, the Franks were amazed at the exotic clothes and appearance of these foreign invaders. Charles himself found the body of Abdul Rahman al-Gafiki, the leader of the Arab army. The Arab juggernaut was finally stopped. It is estimated that the Arabs outnumbered the Franks 2 to 1, or 80,000 to 30,000 men. So this wasn't just some victory for Charles. This was an outstanding victory. After picking through the bodies over the next few days, they finally came across the body of the Arab general, the Umayyad Emir. It is important to note that some scholars think that this might not have been a single battle, but was likely more a number of smaller battles. But the end result was the same. Charles Martel defeated the unstoppable wave of the Arab Caliphate that exploded out of the deserts of Arabia, defeating both the Roman and Persian empires. Charles was a hero to Europe and Christendom, but this wasn't the last time the Arabs would try to take France. The Franks were now the new powerhouse in Western Europe, and they were about to see the greatest king come to rise, Charlemagne, the first emperor in the West in over 300 years. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.